0: Welcome to Why Not Change the World, the RPI podcast. My name is Jeannie Hedden-Gallagher. In this episode, we're talking about war. We'll explore new perspectives on old clashes between different forces. First, we'll hear from a researcher bringing new life to military history through game design. Reeve Hamilton has more.
1: Maurice Suckling worked in the video game industry for more than 20 years, and he's been involved with over 50 published video game titles including some that are massively popular, like Fortnite and the Wii Fit series. Recently, he became an assistant professor in the Games and Simulation Arts and Sciences program at Rensselaer, and he has been publishing board games. Recent titles include Freeman's Farm, 1777, and Chancellorsville, 1863. One is about a battle from the American Revolutionary War and the other from the American Civil War. We recently spoke about his approach to board games, especially those about military conflict, and what he hopes people can learn from them. So as I understand it, most of your professional career has focused on video games, right? And here we are in this technological era, and you have made this relatively recent transition into more of an analog focus. Um, So I'm just wondering, what is the draw or the appeal of working on board games
2: for you? I spent a lot of my time in the video game space in the AAA area, so sort of blockbusters, and rather akin to how Hollywood is um, in terms of movie industry, we don't really go to Hollywood blockbusters or to AAA video games to find the most creatively experimental and risk-taking movies or games, right? We That's not what we find there. We find extremely powerful franchises that give you a certain restrict... They're restrictive creatively, right? There are certain things you have to deliver on, a certain audience you have to... Satisfying. So, if you if you want to do something a bit different, you work in indie games. You want to sort of do something that, that's going to be more risky. And board games generally allow us to be more experimental. Well, and can you talk a little bit about how
1: your work seems to combine both a love of board games and a love of history? You know, I have an
2: academic background in history too, and it's just always been one of my research interests and you know, now I've switched jobs. I came to RPI a few years ago as a professor of practice. I'm now an assistant professor, so my job has changed, and I have a research profile. and It's one of my key research interests: is, well, how do we represent history? What are the problems with representing history in ludic form? How can we do it better and more broadly? And you know, that's a, that's a big topic, but I think one of the answers is by looking at history beyond just war. But most of your games
1: thus far have included war elements, right? Mm -hmm. Can you sort of elaborate on what beyond
2: war means? Sure, yeah, I mean, I think my games, most of my games are generally going to be interested in, be concerned with military history. Uh, Not all of them, but I think um, most of them will be. But, um, you know, I'm playtesting a game right now, which is on the diplomatic crisis in 1914, the crisis that led up to the war after the assassination of Franz Ferdinand. It's not a war game because it's not about conflict resolution, at least not conflict between military forces, but it's a conflict resolution between diplomatic forces, if you like. So, you know, that's an example of of a game that's I'm concerned with history, I'm concerned with military history there, but I'm also concerned with other aspects, other avenues into it you know history isn't just about these forces who batter each other into into submission there's a another game that i'm working on right now is about the um peace of paris the series of interlinked treaties that bring the american war of revolution to a close so it's you know it's, it's a game about formalizing treaties as opposed to So it's called Peacemakers, right? It's a game about sort of stopping war in a way, but nevertheless stopping war with your own particular vested interests uh, paramount. Everyone's trying to stop the war still, but you you still want to be doing it in such a way that it's advantageous to you. So when you're putting that together or you're putting together another one of your
1: historical games, how much research do you have to do? How much do you have to actually represent the... Concerns of the actual conflict.
2: They're completely overlapping these kind of parts of your activity as a historian stroke researcher and this activity as a designer. If you don't have anything to say as a historian, I'm not sure that you should really be doing much designing, I suppose is how I feel about it. Or even if I do feel like that, I feel like even if you design something, you are inadvertently, perhaps subconsciously, you're saying something.
1: Well, has there been a moment as a designer yourself where you've come up with a system or some game mechanics that have sort of captured exactly what you want to say? So
2: with Freeman's Farm, I designed a combat mechanic that, I don't know if it's fair to say that it captured everything that I wanted to say, but it said it well enough, succinctly enough that I was happy with it. And the issue that I've had is that for many years, being a lot of bored... War games. I haven't actually enjoyed the combat resolution bit. You think that should be the apex of the drama, right? You feel like that should be the thing that's the most uh, captivating piece of the the theatre, if you like. And I frequently find myself just not liking it. If I think about game models where I the game system asks you to tot up your your totals and then figure out a ratio calculate different modifiers come up with these odds roll on a combat results table and cross refer the 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 meaning that die roll and what the result is and then maybe double check it because maybe i missed out a couple of modifiers and i should jump one column to the right that can feel immensely unsatisfying to me it definitely sort of kills this moment of, of drama it's like a it's like a comedian telling a joke and then instead of it delivering the that comedian delivering the punchline and you going, oh, I get it. It's like a punchline that you just have to then go check a couple of reference books to check that it's actually funny and check that it makes sense, right? So it's killed all the drama. So instead, I just developed a system that was rolling dice. So you would know pretty much as soon as possible what that result meant. It's it's not in and of itself anything new. People have been using dice for a long time time you know dice rolling it can feel like it's it's just luck you just you roll some dice and they're good or they're bad but what can you do so i wanted to introduce this sense in which in combat it's infrequently one moment that decides everything this moment can last perhaps several minutes so to represent that i wanted to give players the chance to roll dice but then if they wanted to to re-roll dice and in that particular game, they can re them as many times as they like. But every time they do, they're making their forces weaker. So you yourself are responsible for perhaps defeating yourself by effectively throwing your men into, into combat where they can't make any headway. But you understand that they must, so you keep sending them up towards the target objective again and again. So it was dramatically satisfying, but also mechanically simple and not. A complicated rule for people to understand so i was happy about you know that aspect
1: now obviously the outcome in the game version of this battle is going to be different from what actually happened so what is the educational value in that
2: i think there's education in just sort of understanding what it is that you're seeing when you're playing this this board game so you're um, when you're understanding what these perhaps wooden pieces or plastic pieces what they represent you're starting to understand some of the picture of the forces involved and perhaps the terrain geography and other aspects other aspects of this if you like this this narrative you can't help but start to understand regardless of really what happens but then in the process of, of playing you're obviously increasing that understanding but also you're delivering this sort of experiential learning you're getting a sense of what it feels like to be um understanding that one particular area is the critical area everything matters on how you approach this next part of the the battle and delivering that sense of tension i think is uh, incredibly useful as a, as a educational tool so what do you hope people take away from your games i suppose in general i hope that they're just driven to explore history further if, if they're driven to do that, if they look at that topic and think, I want to learn more about this, I want to read up about it, I want to understand it better. I'm extremely happy about that. Uh, And obviously, I'm hoping that they're entertained by it as well. I mean, these are attempts to represent history, but I'm I'm aware that it's difficult to, I I don't claim that they're in any way, in any ways, deep simulations of, of it. Or the particular topics but they're they're supposed to be you know as a designer you have to choose your design lens you can't do everything the only way to do everything is to go back in time and live that exactly as it happened on a one-for-one time scale that's obviously impossible and not like to be any fun so you know you have to choose what are the things i care about what are the key narrative beats that i think i want to hit here that i want players to go home with so you know in the case of crisis 1914, I hope that people see that, hey, when I play this game, I get the sense that war was avertible. If we had cooperated together, if diplomats from different nations had found a way to get past their own governments, their own cabinets, their own uh, militaries, there was a way for this war to have to, to, to have been averted. It was not inevitable. If they go away with that, that's a powerful uh, educational takeaway.
0: Next, I recently spoke with Ted Kruger, an associate professor in the School of Architecture here at Rensselaer, about the never-ending high-stakes battle between hospitals and germs. He introduced me to an idea that completely changed the way I look at sanitizing buildings, a concept he calls architectural probiotics.
3: So the idea of the Architectural probiotic is just a parallel to the probiotics that you might eat with your morning yogurt in a certain way, right? Uh, And these are uh, ways of introducing and culturing a particular microbial community for our benefit. Um, We know that from from many studies that uh, all of the surfaces of the built environment are covered with microorganisms. Our response to that is basically to wipe the surface clean of any living organisms. Right now, what we tend to do in in the time of COVID, but also in the time of other preceding pandemics, was to put on the the hand sanitizer, wash your hands a lot. Um, These things are necessary. I'm not disputing them. What it does is it cleans out the community entirely. Those procedures don't target only the pathogen, they target everything. So then we might look at when there is no community, what becomes reestablished? Well, we don't control that actually. It just reestablishes as it does. Um, It may be advantageous to us. It may get rid of the bad things and the good things come back but there's no guarantee there
0: but don't we need to clean and sanitize
3: what we're finding out with regards to the hands it's all the sanitizing creates a community which is one of the main reservoirs of um, resistant bacteria types so we're promoting drug resistant bacteria types by the things that we do it might be that if we could foster good communities of microorganisms, they might protect us better than completely sanitizing and starting over.
0: Okay, but how does that play a role in architecture or the built environment? How do we put good bacteria in buildings?
3: Okay, so if we take that and, and we then look parallel at, at the world of the built environment, um, what kinds of things might we think about in terms of, of the built environment? And let's say something like a hospital um now we sanitize like crazy and they're some of the best people at doing that an operating room is pretty carefully controlled um yet if we look at what happens on the hands and we say why don't we just as a thought experiment let's apply that to the built environment would we be better off to sanitize or would we be better off to create a robust community microorganisms that might cooperate with us in protecting us but you know in order to do that we need a lot more knowledge we need a different attitude because the attitude we have now is very uh, very warlike you know we go in and carpet bomb the the uh the microbes on our hands because there's an intruder hiding in there so we kill the whole village i mean this is very <laughs> <laughs> very medieval or, or worse, you know, uh, maybe that's not the right idea. Uh, maybe to establish healthy communities would be a better idea. This is kind of a, a medical view, um, and and this view is has a long history and has produced some really spectacular, wonderful things for humanity. But there's another group, which I call the culinary tradition, in which we've partnered with microorganisms, some bacteria, some fungi, some yeast, etc. That produce most of the things we really like to eat, cheeses and fermented vegetables or meats or beverages or the list goes on and on, all this cool stuff. Many things that require human intervention to prepare are actually the work of microbes. so maybe there's another path forward and maybe there's a different way to think about it.
0: So fascinating. I love the connection to the food. Do architectural probiotics actually exist yet or are they still in the conceptual phase?
3: Um, they're, they're a non-existent entity so far. They're not something that we currently have um, and there isn't really the foundational knowledge at the moment that we need. But this pandemic that we're in certainly gives us a reason to think about that. I think what what's valuable about it now is that it it's really proposing a different attitude. Um, and you know this this notion that you know germs are bad and we need to kill them all. That's not really how it works. We're getting to understand that we're really embedded in a in a world very deeply and much of it is microorganisms and microorganisms, are not just bacteria, but even viruses and, and fungi and spores of all kinds. I mean, these, these things, um, in, in terms of the pyramid of life, they, they form the basis of that, you know? And I think that the image that we have of, we sit at the apex of the pyramid of life and we're so important and things like that, um, that needs to be replaced by an understanding that when you're standing at the top you're most dependent on everybody that's below you. And if you ever made a little pile of people, you know, as a kid where everybody stands on all four, goes down on all fours and you make a pile, the person on the top seems to be like, "Hey, look at me," but actually it's all the people down below that're doing the work and uh, and uh, we're dependent on them. Maybe we need to be nice. Folks who are, you know, at the top of the pyramid need to realize that it's it's all that down below that does all the work. Um, and that's the dependency that we don't seem to recognize. But there's great benefit if we do.
0: As a society, we are really seeing the interdependence of organisms play out now because of the COVID-19 pandemic. How... How is the current health problem impacting your idea or this idea of architectural probiotics?
3: Well, we're in a world now where we have a lot of people and they're in close proximity to many kinds of animals. And the fact that diseases might jump from one to the other and then be able to spread because of our ability to travel and our propensity to travel this this is creating every two or three years a major pandemic threat. Sometimes it's stopped. sometimes it's not. But we should all see it coming. We should see them coming more and more. So there's a need to, to think about, well, what should we do with respect to these things? How should we approach that? And are the approaches that we currently use, Effective ones, or do we need to invent new ones? Um, I Guess I'm also anticipating the the next pandemic and when we're done with this probably within five We're gonna get another threat Because that's the world we live in so we need to wake up and say well, let's start thinking about things differently It's interesting to think about you know, could we do What we claim medicine is now in other ways The doctors are thinking we can, it's called wellness. I'm sure you've all heard about it, right? So there's, instead of trying to fix a problem, we're trying to prevent the problem. There's telehealth and all kinds of ideas in medicine about distributing care in a different way and so on. Why why not think about the built environment in a similar way as, as a partner in some of those efforts? You know, maybe we can start to do some management of diseases, some management of, and, and microbes are so influential on the diseases that we get, not just because the common cold or whatever, but all kinds of diseases are being understood as influenced by the microbiomes, gut microbiomes, as well as external ones. Why not participate in that? Maybe it it just creates a healthier environment for us all.
0: This episode of Why Not Change the World was recorded remotely due to the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Please take a moment to rate the podcast on whatever app you're on. And if you'd like to learn more about what's happening at Rensselaer, visit rpi.edu. Thanks for listening.